think we're recording. <laughs> Cheers, Worcester. It's January the 16th, 2018, and this is 508, a show about Worcester. I'm Mike Benedetti, and this is Brendan Milliken. What's happening, brother? Brendan, we're just doing our show, man. We are. We're just, we're just having a good time hanging out at our house. Who do we have here with us? Being cool. Today on the show, our special guest is... Katie Burke of Den of Geek. How are you doing, Katie? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Thanks for being here. Katie is a Worcester resident and a pop culture journalist. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Black Lightning, murder, extending Worcester City Council terms from two to three years, legalized weed, illegalized weed, toxic masculinity, updating stories, Doctor Who, and The Last Jedi. It's a full docket. back. Worcester, we're back <laughs> on Unity Radio 102.9 FM. I'm Michael Benedetti. I'm Katie Burt. I'm Brendan Milliken. <laughs> and we're on the radio talking about Worcester. I want to talk about... No, I don't have the most gruff voice. I, I can't be that. About, uh, My voice is pretty gruff. I want to talk about city council agenda. I want to talk about drugs. And I want to talk about people killing people. Uh, and then we're going to connect these all back into uh, like Black Lightning or there being a lady on Doctor Who or something, probably. Ambitious. Uh, today, the city council is going to be uh, is there be taking uh, Warmland Street, which is a private street, off of the official map, which is something which is done presumably so that the uh, person who owns the street can change the street, rebuild in the area, something like that. Gary Rosen has an article uh, or an item on the agenda. Asking the manager into us having a van that will drive around the neighborhood so that people can do municipal paperwork without going online or going downtown. Apparently, they have something like this in Boston. Councilor Rivera has an item. Is Gary going to drive the, uh, the van? If Gary was going to drive the van, I'll be a hundred percent in favor of this. Yeah. Without that, I feel like less. It seems less exciting to me to spend this money. And I'm going to suggest to Councilor Rosen that he take this a step further and he actually be willing to go to people's houses and help them do paperwork in exchange for maybe dinner or something, or uh, you know, maybe snacks. It doesn't have to be a full dinner. I feel like he should. I feel like he should get an official city vehicle. So he can sell his own car and have his his vehicle from the city. He can be the mobile city city hall because otherwise you're just recreating the existing problem, right? If the argument is people can't get to city hall to get city business done, I'm sure you're still going to have people who can't get to the senior center or can't get to a library or whatever the case may be. The only way to solve this problem is actually have Gary take it upon himself uh, to go door to door and ensure that everybody has their their needs met by by city hall. I would love this. Gary, I, I love Gary so much. Everyone knows this already. Councilor Rivera has an item on the agenda asking the manager uh, if a city person has uh, uh, concerns about gentrification, being displaced about gentrification, is there someone in the city that, uh, that they could contact who might be able to help them with that in some respect? Councilor Bergman has an item asking the city's lawyer what the council would have to do to revise things like the length of a city council term, the attendance meetings for the city council, etc. Uh, and there's an item on the agenda where the mayor is asking the manager for the city to support local groups who are working to establish a memorial to the legendary abolitionist, feminist, and Worcesterite radical Abby Kelly Foster, who died in 1887, whose birthday I think was yesterday. Shared with Martin Luther King Jr. I think so. We have a couple. Uh, there's a there's three papers that I was looking at this week that were very interesting, academic papers. 
Um, one of them, and, and I think that they relate to the, uh, is, is it in the uncertain future that marijuana has in Worcester, Brendan, with the federal government saying, oh, you know that part where like this stuff is illegal on the federal level, we're going to start taking that seriously again? No, I, I think that's, uh, no, it won't be an issue at all. I, you I don't think it, it will be an issue? No, because it, realistically, um, I think if the, so the, you're really only talking the DEA at that point, right? Because it's a federal issue. State police and all local police, almost you tell universally, me. You tell me. almost universally, uh, local police and the state police and uh, the state office uh, are not going to mess with this. Stuff. have all said, yeah, we're right. not going to touch it. So right. really, then you're just left with federal enforcement. And that's kind of the DEA's job. The DEA up in here, if I'm not mistaken, is almost entirely focused on opiate trafficking, as they should be, because that's you know an, an actual problem. Uh, so their, their options at that point would either be to uh, redirect efforts at marijuana uh, and, and stop focusing so much, it would seem, on opiates. And I, I just can't see the DEA thing. You know, what would be a really good PR move right now is let's just walk away from this whole opioid crisis uh, and go back to focusing on weed. I just don't see that being a win for anybody. And uh, yeah, before, so Massachusetts is at, our recreational bill, adult use bill, should be coming full circle in July, I think it is, when um, okay. uh, retail can start going online, the likelihood is we will probably find a federal solution to this uh, prior to that. And at, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a very simple states' rights issue too, right? Like, you know, from the perspective, if, if the, the governor, the attorney general's office, uh, law enforcement on the state level all agree, we really don't care what the federal government says now, like, that's actually what you want, because then as soon as something does happen, a raid, a tax issue, a banking issue, now you actually have standing to move a state case uh, at the behest of state government through the federal system, so the feds then actually, through the court system, need to be able to defend uh, their articulate and, and defend their stance. That's how we get real change done in the United States, right? This is how things like same-sex marriage okay, uh, so, come about, so, is so, by states saying, we disagree with you and taking it to court. All right, Martin Luther King, let me interrupt you and ask you this question. Doesn't this doesn't this uh, thing of the Justice Department saying they're going to enforce this though? Hasn't this changed like the financial the way things are going to operate financially? That people can like <clears throat> no longer be confident having a bank account because it could be seized at the federal level. That technically so, was the case, anyways. I mean, the, the yeah, the but order you that want you... people to be able to have a bank account because you want people to be able to have to pay taxes because you yeah, want people to course. be able, you would like this to become like. Um, you would like it to no longer be the case that in order to uh, uh, do things financially or to have some sort of uh, contract enforcement in this business that you have to have a bunch of dudes with guns who you paid personally rather than the police You do are preaching to the choir, but again, I think that's actually why you want the state to move forward in the trajectory we're already on is so that they can then have standing to make a legal claim that it is the federal government that is, is, is hampering uh, this degree of, pro of progress. And I mean, the, the, the banking thing isn't new, right? I mean, the first couple of years that California was doing medical, first decade that California was doing medical, the first couple of years of Colorado uh, doing recreational, banking was a, a no-go uh, issue to begin with. That's the reason why this right. whole memo, was it the Cole memo, I believe it was called? It was something along those lines. Uh, you know, under the Obama administration came about was so that the FDIC insured banks would relax a little bit, take a breath, and re realize that the IRS was not going to be coming in and doing raids and what have you. If the feds want to change that, I mean, so who's likely to complain now? Uh, the Connie, the, Connie, and the banks, Gary right? Rosen. I mean, you, you now have major major banks that have seen this massive influx of cash deposits from this new industry. Do you think they're going to be quiet and say, you know, all right, take all that money back? We didn't want to have anything to do with that. That's not going to help our bottom line or our lending or whatnot. 
the whole thing is just silly. And you know, I know. Okay. okay. Well, okay. well I'm, I'm sorry. I want to read. I mean, one, <laughs> one one thing I'll tell you, Brendan, is that the space recognition software does not recognize the side of your head as it, it does. does. It? No. Oh, so, yeah. How's that? Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yeah. I've been winning the. Mike, we have another control. caller, and I don't know that this one has anything to do with uh, pest control. Oh, it got you. It got you, but it's. Uh, Anyway, I, I want to read a... Um, well, while you're reading, caller, what do we got going on? Um, Hi. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Wait, we have... You are battling... No, that's great. That was fantastic. I think we should let them... You know what we should do is callers... <laughs> we're now plural. Callers... Can, can, can we put the callers on the, on the monitors in the room so this camera can pick it up, too? Can we? Oh, no, I cannot. Okay. Well, no one will know what these colors are saying, but it's hilarious. Go ahead, caller. Yes, yes, go ahead, caller. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I can hear you fine. I think Mike is actually doubling down on the disruptiveness. Yeah, and he's now disrupting you. Brendan, did you have something you wanted to say to that? What was that? Did you have something you wanted to say to that, Brendan? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, go ahead, caller. Colin, that's a really great point. Thanks for calling in. I appreciate that. That was really fascinating. It was great hearing from so you. So this first paper is called, Is Legal Pot Criminalizing Mexican Drug Trafficking Organizations? The answer is yes. Uh, this is a paper by Evelina Gavrilova, Takuma Kamada, and Flores Zoutman, which was published in the November issue of the Economic Journal. They're looking at medical marijuana laws and violent crime in states that border Mexico. Mm -hmm. Finding that the closer you are to Mexico, uh, and the more drug-related the crimes, the bigger impact there is in reducing them from medical marijuana laws, and that they do, in fact, lead to a reduction in crime. And their uh, induction is that this is because it is, is impacting Mexican drug trafficking organizations. Uh, the open question here is, of course, is how much marijuana is coming in via Mexico and Mexican drug trafficking organizations and how much marijuana is coming in via other uh, places. There's some really interesting stuff there too though because just because when, when you talk about uh, Mexican cartel activity, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that you're talking about Mexico, right? Because you're now talking about institutions that are dealing in dollar figures that only large international multinational corporations are capable of dealing in. Mm -hmm. And there's just arguably just as much involvement with uh, production of marijuana by funded by uh, Mexican drug cartels, but say in Canada, right? Because there's no reason why you, you don't need to stay geographic, especially when you're uh, not paying taxes and you're not licensing your business, right? So finding a grower up in BC and funding their operation uh, is just is probably easier at this point than it is uh, focusing on, on on actual domestic production in Mexico. Very good. You seem really concerned about the Mexican border. Just saying, like, you know, I, there, there really are no borders when it comes to drugs. That's, that's We live in a world without borders, aren't we? When we're doing drugs, yes. There is a world uh, without borders. That's, no, I mean, what, if you're doing drugs, definitely. Um, black market so stuff, I mean, that's just what you're always going to have. Is the borders don't really matter so much. You know, it's so frustrating not having physical control of the camera and yeah. so being able to just, like, say, now you're done talking. Yeah, you can't do that. Like, no, I can't do it. All I think probably, the camera should get the $5. You could slip uh, <laughs> the ten, 10 bucks and you know and, and mute me, but you know, I'll slip them twenty. Investigating the effects of medical marijuana laws of educational attainment. This is a paper by uh, Yao Wan Li and Marco A. Palma in the most recent um, edition of Economics Letters. And their big takeaway is that medical marijuana laws decrease high school graduation rates. 
Okay, so I've been dropping about 0.36 percentage points, uh, which in a total of 19 states and I didn't read this paper. This how, is not helpful. How can you um, make that argument though when uh, kids in high school can't legally be using marijuana? Because is the, I think the assumption here would be that having medical marijuana laws means that there's more marijuana around and then more for kids to smoke. Although, like, the amount of kids smoking weed has gone down. I'm sure they can. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that paper does. When you look at the data, the federal data that's out there, every state that has gone through legalization, whether it be medical or recreational, has seen a sharp decrease uh, in youth usage rates. That's. I, know, uh, I was talking to. It almost sounds like they're making the argument that the, that the law itself, the language in, in some bill, has actually impacted graduation rates. I think that the, I think you know, like now is a time when, in some ways, you know, we you could say things are worse than ever. But in terms of like drug use or violence or whatever, it's so hard to say that in this country. I had somebody, a young man, lifelong Worcester, who was telling me the other day about how, oh, this generation today, blah blah blah. And I, you know, it was all you do just not to quote chapter and verse on these all these statistics to him because these kids today, Brendan, unlike <laughs> our generation. We were, we were, I think, the biggest cohort in terms of sex and drugs. We almost were a mess. The, yeah, it was a great time, but we were a mess. Almost right. the most violent cohort. Yeah. And ever since then, it has been all the other way, downhill, uphill, whatever, in this country. Sunshine and rainbows. All the other way. I've got a third paper called Community and the Crime Decline, the Causal Effects of Local Nonprofits on Violent Crime by Patrick Sharkey and Gerard Torres Espinoza, published in the, most, in the October 2017 edition of the American Sociological Review. They are looking at the impact of uh, local nonprofit organizations, what role they played in the national decline of violence from the 1990s to the 2010s. Drawing on a panel of 264 cities spanning more than 20 years, we estimate that every 10 additional organizations focusing on crime and community life in a city with 100,000 residents leads in a to a 9% reduction in the murder rate, a 6% reduction in the violent crime rate, and a 4% reduction in the property crime rate. And they managed to do all that without blaming weed. Well, you know, and it's interesting. He, he had a big op-ed in the Sunday's New York Times, which is how I got turned on to this. And in this op-ed, in some ways, I mean, that sounds like a bit of a, um, you know, like, oh, like the kind of thing that um, liberals really want to hear about, like, oh, yeah, all these community organizations really are making an impact. And that 10% is a big job. Uh, in this New York Times op-ed, he also focuses on things like just sort of like general, like like the, like the cops, for example, and like again, like the way that things are much safer in our cities than they were. And mm -hmm. he points the, the statistic that I think really jumped out at us is um, I'll read this paragraph. Uh, Though homicide is not a common cause of death for most of the United States population, for African-American men between the ages of 15 and 34, it is the leading cause, which means that any change in the homicide rate has a disproportionate impact on them. The sociologist Michael Friedson and I calculated what the life expectancy would be today for blacks and whites had the homicide rate never shifted from its level in 1991. This again was when Brendan and I were out running the streets. We found that the national decline in the homicide rate since then has increased the life expectancy of black men by roughly nine months. That figure, that figure may not seem like much, but it is exceedingly rare for any change in society to, to generate such a degree of change in life expectancy. And he points out that basically, uh, 
basically the hood is as dangerous today for poor people as the ritzy suburbs were for wealthy people in 1993. Which is really crazy, and, and, and yeah. only crazy in the context of if you, I think if you pull the average American, the average person, uh, as to whether or not society was improving or whatnot, most people in Egypt can say, no, it's never been worse. And I don't know if that's just a, a, a feature of getting because older Because you watch these but... Avengers films and you're like, these aliens are coming out from the <laughs> sky. I used to see There's comics everywhere. I've not yeah. seen it with my own eyes, Brandon. Yeah. The sky opened up and they just came down here. Mm -hmm. No, but seriously, there's, I mean, it, we talk about this all the time. We've been talking about this for years. That I mean, the reality is that it's it's never been better to be alive, really. I mean, by all uh, conceivable measure, you know, in, in the when you can when you can identify an actual uh, decrease or an increase in life expectancy in a demographic and tie that back to something that might seem trivial, like uh, you know, not for profits or community organizing or whatnot. That's huge. Uh, and and it's, it's huge, stacked on top of already marked decreases going on, what, three decades now? Uh, when it comes to violent crime, when it comes to um, you know, just safety in, in general, the, all, the, all the big hallmark measures that we would use to judge the health of society, we ain't doing so bad. What's going on with the show today, Brandon? Why are we so happy? Katie's here. It's my effect. Katie is here. We, Katie, we're gonna let's talk to you for about a minute more, and then we'll do the last segment all with you. Um, is Black Lightning good? <laughs> Black Lightning is good. I've only seen the first two episodes, but um, it, if you watch other uh, superhero shows, especially on the CW, it's just we're talking about Arrow. We're talking about <laughs> Arrow, the Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, I'm, Supergirl, which I do really like. But um, it's how does it how does, how does it rank? Does well, it's about an older superhero. He's coming out of superhero retirement. He's not been a superhero for nine years, and he's like, you know what? They need me again. He's a high school principal, so he, his like alter ego is just way more involved in like trying to enact change in ways that feel real and possible. That's the best part of the show. Like the superhero stuff is fine, but it just feels like it's it's grounded in a setting that is much more realistic and interesting than any of the other superhero shows are even attempting to do. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Let's, we're going to go to one more break. People at home, don't touch that dial because we're going to talk, be talking more with Katie and Bubblister here in a second. On Fire Alert. <sighs> All right, so now this is working. What's up? Now this is working. Oh, yeah. it's making weird choices. I think it can't see our faces very clearly. I would actually, did you change that uh, vivid setting? Oh. I was noticing out there that the lights are so bright, I'm wondering if it's having a hard time uh, determining skin color uh, and whatnot. And um, there you go. And the other thing, too, is we've got these mics in our face. Do you want to turn that light off and turn this light on? Oh, no, no. There's a really great uh, filter setting. It's almost like what you see on Instagram um, that it automatically imports, and the colors are so robust. Uh, when it's vivid, it, it almost makes sense for terrible outdoor lighting, but inside it might be too much. Anyone who's watching this show, thank you for your patience and uh, making it this far into the video. I'm really glad. 
We did a great job. This so uh, Hank, just so you're not completely in the dark here, Mike had suggested that there would be a five dollar Woodbury gift card for somebody they could pull off disrupting the show. Uh, well, you, you, your your first buddy, he's still uh, that was fantastic. He, he, he just keeps coming back. I feel like he just wants. He just wants more. I mean, he will not give up. Can you forward a call? Maybe we just we surprise him and have Ford's pest control pick up and. He's <laughs> uh, being so patient. I want to what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about changing stories in the last segment. Okay. I want, I want like to, modernizing or just changing? Just changing, just yeah. people just people getting over problems, just people getting over things. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm ready. That's what I want to talk about. <laughs> you want to talk about Dr. Who? I do. I'm listening. All I want to talk about is <laughs> This is supposed to be about Lister. Can't just be all right. Yeah. Just uh, come on down all here. Right. Hey, everybody. Hey everybody, welcome back to the 508 Radio Hour. My name is Michael Benedetti. Also today on the show, he is Katie Bird. Hi Katie. Hello. And Brendan Milliken. What's up, my brother? Hey, Brendan. Katie Bird, what is going on these days with all of these crazy pop culture stories? Like, you got Black <laughs> Lightning, which has, I guess, I guess we've, we've long had stories about teachers and principals, but, but less shows about black people. Mm -hmm. So this is another show about black people. Mm -hmm. I guess nobody can complain they ruined Black Lightning because the original Black Lightning was also black. <laughs> I, like, I like how they take these things from the 60s and the 70s like um, like uh, Black Lightning or Black Panther when it was very important for people to like put that in the title and now it's just like uh, whenever, whenever, they, whenever they reboot them or they put them on television it sounds a little bit it sounds a little bit unnecessary. Yeah. I don't want to just lightning. <laughs> like I, I think it's good that they, I could, I think it's good that they called Creed Creed rather than like Black Rocky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as funny as that is, it's funny for about two seconds, and then it just seems dumb. Um, you know, again, like I feel like there's some affinity of this between like uh, trying to get your head around the story of Worcester as being a hellhole of murder and uh, decay versus Worcester as being like a functional American city. A similar thing of getting your head around the idea of like whatever, uh, all the girls in Star Wars. Although you think Princess Leia is pretty cool, right? Yeah, Princess Leia has always been cool. Or especially this this blowback against Doctor Who. This is a show where the main character is a guy, it's always been a guy, or mm -hmm. then a white guy, English guy. And uh, we don't need to go into the ins and the outs of how the show works because if you follow pop culture, you know, and you care, and if you don't, you don't, you're not going to pay attention to this anyway. But now it's going to be a uh, lady actress, uh, Jodie Whittaker. Mm -hmm. uh, have you have you caught any of this, like, blowback against this in your, from reaction to your writing about Doctor Who? Um, probably. <laughs> I actually have started a policy of not reading the comments on a lot of my stories because... For my mental health, I feel like it's not something like if someone wants to have a conversation with me on Twitter or find me in another way, I'm always excited to talk about things. But there's a there are a lot there's a lot of vicious anonymous people on the internet. The comment sections is always sometimes a hard way to negotiate. It is. It's not the best place to well. facilitate conversation. You know what always kills me about um, whenever you change a demographic for a long-standing character, whether it be race, gender, whatever the case may be is that it, it, it makes it, because there are so many loud, angry people who are angry just because of a change, it makes it nearly impossible to levy legitimate criticisms on mm -hmm. storytelling. Um, you mentioned earlier the, uh, the Ghostbusters reboot, mm -hmm. right? Like, 
there was such a loud, hostile crowd surrounding the idea that the Ghostbusters could never be female, it made it impossible to just point out logically that it was just a terrible film. Mm -hmm. Like, the writing wasn't very good, the comedy wasn't very good, and, like, the apt comparison would have been, like, a, a bunch of younger comics uh, who were just kind of getting their legs under them versus Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray at, like, the height of their careers. Like, it was, it's, it was, like, not a fair comparison, and it was, I think, disappointing to a fair number of people just because the movie wasn't as good, right? Like, that's, but you can't make that criticism without sounding immediately like you're on uh, team get all the girls out of the room. Like, that, and that's not, that's not the team that you want to be on. It is frustrating. I, I mean, this is maybe why I make fun of us being so positive about Worcester, because I don't want to discount that somebody can complain about Worcester for any number of reasons, which yeah. is what I spend a lot of my personal recreational free time doing. Lots of great things you complain uh, about. Yeah. And I think for me, whether you're, you know, complaining about Worcester or complaining, or being critical in a constructive way about Worcester or about stories, criticism is a, is a sign of, like, love or, or it's a it's such a, it takes such time and energy to do it well mm -hmm. so people who just think that when you know you're criticizing something that's you know automatically an attack or that means that you don't care about something for me that it means the opposite if right. you're doing it in a constructive manner right because when, you're engaging with it when mike and i are, are are knocking you know trivial things about city hall we're actually acknowledging that we watch city council meetings <laughs> and that in and of itself is like that's some high level fanboy stuff there that you know should not be discounted we're, we're only we're only paying attention because is, we love this is where this is why i love this pop culture conversation because i do think that like one of the most psychologically healthy ways you can engage with Worcester politics in an intense way is as a fanboy, is mm -hmm. using the sorts of things that we use to relate to other forms of culture and not taking it seriously as, I don't know, there's other ways you could look at it, like a sporting match, like some sort of political, actual legitimate political thing, like uh, a, a war or whatever. I feel like those, to me, are less, psych less psychologically healthy than watching it as, as somebody who's like watching a TV drama. Oh sure, yeah, no, and, and it, that, that's that's probably the way it should be. And you know, you pull a lot of the personality out of, out of it, and you look at the the big picture. And say, I, I I love this as a package, but I can still criticize that there's a plot hole. Yeah, like that. And we've only got about a minute left. Katie, thank you for being on Five Away today. Brennan, thank you for being on Five Away today. Mike, thank you for being on Five Away today. No problem, no problem, fellas. Um, and everybody, thanks for listening to the show, uh, for putting up with the show. I'm really enjoying the way that we're doing this on the radio. We're still working through the technical hiccups. Uh, to be fair, the technology is just fine. I think we're the hiccup. We're working through our own, our own sort of hiccups. If anyone had ever listened to the back catalog, there was like an episode that was entirely static. Like, there's really been a lot of episodes that had a lot of technical problems. So yeah. we're doing spectacular. And I think it's around. more important that you get the stuff out into the world in some form. It is. It is. Anyway, and everybody, are we, so you actually, so like Black Lightning, where does it rank? Like, if, like just, you got 30 oh seconds left. Rank the, rank the DCCW shows. What's the top one? Supergirl or Black From Lightning? the pilot or? Just based on what you know. I mean, I can't even compare. There's such different things. <sighs> How do you write about Pablo? I mean, definitely Black Lightning is, is better than Arrow and The Flash right now. But. Arrow season one. Probably, yes. Whoa! There and it's it telling is. telling a more important story. Not every story suffering on the <laughs> island. <laughs> the billionaire. Uh... We'll be back next week, Lester. <laughs> Thank you. Love you a time. Love you. Kisses. Bye bye. Thank you, Mr. Stoltz. Very nice.